Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Bob Dylan was a musical genius and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He didn't follow leaders. He chased that thin, wild, mercury sound. He never looked back even as the times changed. And as the times changed, Bob Dylan changed. He tried on and discarded identities like they were masks. He transformed. He transfigured. And somewhere along the way, the Bob Dylan that you thought you knew died. This is his story. This is Dr. Ed Thaler. Uh, This is day number six now, uh, August 3rd, 1966, here at my home in Middletown, New York. Progress remains about the same with the patient, uh, Robert Zimmerman, a.k.a. Bob Dylan. He seems to have lost some of the delusion from before, which is a positive sign, but I'm disappointed to say this delusion has been replaced by signs of um, depression. Bob and his waking hours, of which there are few, seems to be very, very low. So there's this story. A 
man lost his wife, the love of his life. She died young. Obviously, the man is distraught. He can't continue. Life is meaningless. Until one night, he meets the devil at the crossroads. The devil strikes a bargain. In return for the man's soul, the devil will bring his wife back to life for one day and one day only. The man agrees without hesitation. But before the devil performs his work, he asks, Is there anything you would change about her? Do you think you could fix her nose, the man asks. I never liked her nose. So the devil makes the change. The man then thinks, What about her eyes? Can we make them blue? So the devil changes her eyes. The man continues. The bags under his wife's eyes are removed. Her skin is cleared. Her temper curbed. Her trauma gone. When the man's wife is eventually brought back, to his horror, she's a completely different person. In fact, she's a total stranger. Grief-stricken at his foolish actions, the man kills himself. The devil had claimed another soul. See, when you change so much, sometimes you forget who you've been. A complete unknown, as it were. Then you're left with something different. And all that changing and becoming something different, it's bound to leave blood on the tracks. Chapter 6 Bob Dylan is pretending to be Bob Dylan. I'm getting into my car. I don't know why I'm compelled to drive, but I am. I throw the station wagon into gear and fly out of the driveway. I know where I'm going, and it's already breaking my heart. By the time I got to the early 1980s, I had learned a thing or two about loss. And who the hell was Bob Dylan, anyway? Vagabond? Rock and roll icon? Counterculture hero? Legend? None of those spoke to me. The born-again phase of my life had created a distance between me and some of my old friends and even family members. That had been preceded by my divorce from Sarah and a battle involving my kids. Man, that was rough. Then I was in court with my former manager, Albert Grossman. We had had a dispute over publishing rights to songs. It always ends up like that in the music business and I was no different. Courtrooms, contracts, and lawyers. That's what I was doing when I wasn't on the road or in the studio. But losing a wife and a manager wasn't the end of the loss. From there, I lost a confidant, my studio, and possibly my mind. You forget who you've been. I got this little studio in Santa Monica. Rundown, it was called. It summed me up perfectly at that point. We cut albums like Street Legal and Shot of Love there. In fact, that's it on the Street Legal cover photograph. I liked that studio, but it became tainted. 
It started out as a comfortable place full of creativity and life, but it fell apart so quickly. It ended up becoming a place that I look back on now and remember only fear and death. Grief-stricken. We were recording at Rundown when a woman called Carmel Hubble decided to leave her home in Michigan and come to the studio. That's when it all started to go wrong. We were going through the song To Ramona when I heard a commotion. Rundown wasn't a big studio and all we could hear was shouting from outside the main room. I motioned for the band to stop. I shouted, what's going on? The filmmaker Howard Alk, who was with us at the time working on a project, told me that this woman, Carmel, was at the main entrance claiming to be my girlfriend. She was demanding to come into the session. He awkwardly asked me if we were together. So there's this story. What do you think, Howard, was my response. To be fair to him, she could have been with me. There were a lot of women on the scene at that time. Obviously, the man is distraught. Without any warning, the doors to the main room flew open, revealing a short woman with bright blonde hair. She was like a human firecracker, jolting and exploding in screams at random moments. The security guard was trying to subdue her as diplomatically as possible. Everyone stared. She squirmed in his arms, kicking and shouting, Bob! She kept yelling, Bobby, my sweetheart. Everyone looked at me. I don't know who this is, I shouted in response. And I didn't, man. I'd never laid eyes on this woman before. That's the truth. She's a total stranger. But I couldn't shake the sense that some people in that room didn't believe me. Howard and the security guard had to forcibly remove her from the place. God, she was screaming and screaming about us being lovers. I told everyone to take some time after that. Later, when I got home, there was a note on the gate to my compound, again talking about a sweetheart. A couple days later, another one appeared saying, Mrs. X equals Mrs. Manson. Manson? I won't lie. I was scared. I mean, look at John Lennon. He'd only recently died at the hands of a crazy person. I didn't want to be the next one. The devil strikes a bargain. A few days later, Carmel called one of my backing singers and threatened her life. That was enough for me. My lawyers and the police put a stop to it all. I had an awful feeling that the whole incident would end in tragedy. My hunches were not quite correct, it turned out that Carmel Hubble was not dangerous, but Rundown would witness a death that year. I wasn't that far off the mark. It started on the 1981 tour. That tour was full of good shows, but the ticket sales were lousy. People had been spooked by the religious songs I'd been playing during the previous shows. I mean, give me a break. Is there anything you would change about her? Howard Alk was on that tour too. Like I said, Howard was a filmmaker, but he was also a close friend of mine. He'd worked on all my major films up to that point, like Don't Look Back, Eat the Document, even Ronaldo and Clara. It was reassuring to have Howard with me. I needed close friends at that point, people that knew the real me. I needed them there because I'd started to forget. When you change so much. Howard was filming bits on this tour. I wanted to make a Ronaldo and Clara kind of film. 
something that played with truth and reality, but on a smaller scale than that film. Howard turned 51 on that tour, so we sang happy birthday to him on stage in Pennsylvania. He beamed from the wings, looking like a little boy on Christmas morning. That was the last time I saw him happy. We took a break from the shows before the new year, and Howard was not in a good way. His second marriage was over, and he had nowhere to stay. A man lost his wife. Now, he had been living on my Malibu estate, but he wanted to be on his own, away from everyone else. To tell you the truth, I think he didn't want to face the holidays with everyone playing happy families. Obviously, the man is distraught. I suggested he could stay at Rundown. We made him a little studio apartment. He had a bed, a makeshift one on the floor, a kitchen, a bathroom. He had breathing space. At least I hoped he did. I remember seeing him just before Christmas. You sure you don't want to come to the house for the holidays? I asked him. He shook his head. I'm fine here. I have everything I need, he said. I figured he had plenty of work to get on with, so I left him to it. The devil strikes a bargain. I remember looking at the little bed on the floor and thinking this shouldn't be where a 51-year-old slept on Christmas. That was my last memory of Howard. He'd been using junk for years. That Christmas, he put a needle in his arm for the last time. The coroner said it was an accidental overdose, but Howard knew what he was doing. You can't continue. He knew the dose. He knew how much would be too much. I didn't tour again for years after that. I also left Rundown forever soon after. Howard's death was the encore to a bitter period in my life. Even the moments that should have been happy were a mess during that time. Something I would find out in front of the whole world soon enough. I pull into LAX. I have a cap on so no one will recognize me. I jog from the car to the terminal. I stagger in and find the large departures board. I look, but I can't see it. I'm scanning quickly now, but I still can't see it. Then I do. In big yellow letters, I read it aloud, Duluth. Things should have been so much better than the way they were at this time in my life. I felt disinterested. I lacked confidence. I was hard on myself. Too hard on myself. I didn't know what I wanted to be or where I was going. Life is meaningless. There were two moments in the 1980s that should have been crowning glories, but both got away from me. They were both on a stage. They both featured legends introducing me and they both fell apart. One happened in Philadelphia, one in New York. One was at the John F. Kennedy Stadium, the other was at the Hilton. One was Live Aid, the other was my induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. God, it was so hot that day. 
I'd been drinking with Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood, which I wouldn't recommend before a performance, especially when you're performing with them. That's right. The Stones were my backing band that day, and they were drunk. In New York, I wasn't drunk, but I'd been popping pills. One got me up, the other brought me down. The trick was finding a balance, which I would fail to do that night. It was chaos inside the JFK Stadium. Nothing had been planned. Guitars were everywhere. The lighting was all over the place. No one knew what was happening until the very last second. Not the right atmosphere for a show. The Hall of Fame night was the opposite. It was fiercely planned. All of that night, all of the chaos was inside my head. In Philly, Jack Nicholson introduced me and the band onto the stage. He said, some artists' work speaks for its generation. It's my deep personal pleasure to present to you one of America's great voices of freedom, the transcendent Bob Dylan. Transcendent? I liked that description. The rest of the show, I didn't like it so much. It certainly wasn't a transcendent performance. Springsteen had the same job in New York. His words should have touched me. He said, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. Man, that was an honor. But at the time, it felt like he was talking about someone else. Someone I didn't know. Someone who died a long time ago. As I walked onto the stage to accept that award, I felt like a fraud. I didn't even recognize the person he was describing. As we walked onto the stage in Philly, the noise was immense, only matched by the wall of heat coming at us. I picked up my guitar and straight away the feedback coursed around the stadium. It was deafening, a sign of things to come. I was nervous, thinking of all those people watching. The expectation was overwhelming. It was the same in New York. God, I was so nervous. I mean, just look at the crowd that was watching me. Alan Lomax, Little Richard, Muhammad Ali. By the way, Muhammad Ali. 61 fights, 56 wins, 37 KOs, 5 losses. I wondered what they all thought of the version of Bob Dylan that stood before them that day. I wondered if they still believed in him. In Philly, there were so many big artists on that bill. Neil Young, the Beach Boys, Led Zeppelin, and some big contemporary artists as well. Madonna and Duran Duran, to name a few. I was the headliner, though. All eyes on me. It was a worldwide event. It was a moment. I had to say something important. In that ballroom in New York, I had to give an acceptance speech. I took a moment to look at the crowd before starting. I mean, what could I say? I felt like asking the room who the hell I was to them. Who the hell I was to anyone. In the face of camera flashes, I cleared my throat and started by saying, Thanks, Bruce. We started the Live Aid set with the song Hollis Brown. It was supposed to be blown in the wind with a recently reformed Peter, Paul, and Mary, but I changed my mind that day. Mary Travers was furious. That was the sort of headspace I was in. Anxious, uncertain, lacking confidence. The same feelings had been circling before I'd taken the stage at the Hall of Fame. 
I'd mentioned how it was such an honor to be inducted, considering I couldn't read or write music. The comedian Tony Randall made some joke about finding me a teacher and... and... It sounds stupid to say, but it devastated me. One joke, that's all it took. I couldn't shake it. I felt like I would be laughed at when I took the stage. That's all I was thinking about when giving my speech. The set at Live Aid settled down. In fact, halfway through Hollis Brown, Keith Richards tried to kiss the sky with an acoustic guitar, which I admired. If anyone can kiss the sky with an acoustic, Keith can. At the end of the song, Keith delivered a huge shrug to the audience. Good on him for admitting that we didn't really know what the hell we were doing up there. I jumped back on the mic to say something. I was trying to make a point, but it kind of got lost. I wanted to make sure everyone in need was being thought about that day. I wanted to highlight some of the problems I'd witnessed in my life. Problems from my people. I said, I'd just like to say I hope that some of the money that's raised for the people in Africa, maybe they could just take a little bit of it. Maybe one or two million maybe and use it, say, to pay the mortgages on some of the farms, farmers here owed at the banks. It sounded like I was trying to take the focus off the point of us all being there, but that wasn't my intention. The crowd cheered, but I knew it might not have played well. I guess it seemed unwise. American farmers may have been suffering hard times, but people in Africa were starving to death. I get it. It wasn't the time. But you know, despite people giving me a hard time, some good came out of it. Farm aid happened sometime later, raising money for those farmers, so I guess I won't take back what I said. In New York, my nerves had managed to survive much of my acceptance speech. In fact, I'd even cracked some jokes, and people had laughed. I mean, you can't go wrong in that situation, can you? You're the hero of the night. But I felt so far removed from it all, it was like I was at my own funeral. The Hall of Fame meant I'd earned something, but it also meant I'd failed at the one thing I'd been doing all this time, changing. This felt like an ending, not a new beginning. I'd stopped evolving, stopped inventing, stopped transfiguring. Was that it? Would I no longer change? Was this the end of the road? I ended my speech that night by saying, peace, love, and harmony are greatly important indeed. But so is forgiveness, and we've got to have that too. Forgiveness. I didn't really know who I was talking about when I said that. I didn't know who I was trying to get forgiveness from that night. Some years later, I realized it was for myself. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The car comes to an intersection, and we wait. The driver lets the traffic go. We seem to wait there for what feels like an eternity. My palms are drenched in sweat. My breathing is shallow and very audible. Another car goes by and another and another. And beyond them is the thing I've been staring at this whole time. 2425 7th Avenue, Hibbing, Minnesota. My childhood home. I've always liked punk rock. My kids were young in the 80s, but they were still into punk. I used to slip into shows when I could. I'd leave my house in Malibu and go watch bands like X. Once I went to Santa Monica to see The Clash. I liked the ethos of it, the freedom of it. I wanted to perform in a band like that, just show up to a bar unannounced and play a show without anyone knowing who the hell I was. Sometimes you forget who you've been. In another life, I might have made a punk album, but I've never really liked to go with the sound of the times, especially when they're changing so fast. You have to make your own way. I've always stuck to that. I made a reggae-sounding record called Infidels with Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. I'd worked on the Slow Train LP with him, and by the time we came to work on Infidels, he was a big star. Sly and Robbie, you know them? They played rhythm on that record. Man, they could play. They made that album. Critics thought it was my return to secular music. Rubbish. There was plenty of the same type of stuff in there that had been on those so-called Born Again albums. The difference was this LP. This one did well for me in a business sense. So much so that I had to make a pop video for it. MTV had become a thing artists had to pander to at that time, and I was no different. Then you're left with something different. Now, I hate videos. That's not an art form to me. People call it an art form, but I disagree. I needed a band for the video, which I had, but we were missing a drummer. I'm not talking about Sly and Robbie and the guys that played on the record. This was for the video, okay? So, like all good rock stars in need, I turned to my tour manager's secretary's boyfriend, obviously. He was a drummer, we put him in the video. Charlie Quintana. That was his name. I liked him a lot. We got to chatting during the video shoot. He's a good spirit. I admired his attitude. It was very punk. Turns out his band was pretty good, too. They called themselves the Plugs, with a Z on the end. There was a guy called Tony Marcico on bass. After the video shoot, I wanted to hang with these guys, so we set up a jam at my house. 
few months later, when I was due to play the David Letterman show, I thought, what the hell? I asked them if they wanted to come. So there's this story. They had everything I liked about punk rock. They were raw, raucous even. They played like they were in the middle of a bar fight. It was so exciting. The guitarist was this guy, J.J. Holiday. He wasn't actually in the plugs, but J.J. Holiday, what a name. The Letterman show was pretty young at that time. Only, what, a couple of years old? This was 84, I think. Letterman, he was punk too. You don't have to wear safety pins and spike your hair to be punk. Letterman showed that. It was anarchy on his show. And all that changing and becoming something different. I wanted to be part of that, to prove that I could still change, still evolve into something new. We got to New York on taping day and checked into a fancy Park Avenue hotel. As we did, the guys told me the last time they played in New York, their manager slept in their van with a gun because they thought their drum kit would be stolen. Now they had their own hotel suite. I was seeing it all through the van's eyes. It was like I was seeing this whole life for the first time again. It brought me such joy. We rehearsed 50 songs for The Letterman Show. I didn't tell the guys which ones I wanted to play. I like to keep the bands on their toes. It gives the performance an energy, especially for a band like that. Among those 50 we'd rehearsed were some Infidels tunes and a Sonny Boy Williamson cover. That night on the show, Liberace was appearing with us. He was cooking an egg casserole. I'm not even joking. Man, told you that show was punk. As we waited to perform on the stage at Studio 6, we faced a packed house. I took a look over at JJ, who seemed to be both completely in awe of the whole thing, but completely ready for it, too. I could already feel the energy of the performance, and we hadn't even played a note yet. The house lights dimmed, and the audience broke into applause. I turned to the band and shouted, Let's do the Sunny Boy song to start. They nodded, except for JJ, who didn't even flinch. Without hesitation. Letterman gave us the old intro, and the place went crazy. I forgot what a crowd like that sounded like. I was used to the stereophonic din of the stadium or arena. But here, in this theater, with the crowd all whipped up and this band hungry for blood, it felt exhilarating. We tore that place apart. I hadn't played like that in years. No, I hadn't played like that ever. Still haven't. The audience couldn't get enough. We were only supposed to play a couple tunes, but Letterman asked for another. Sure, I said. So we launched into another. The man agrees without hesitation. As we played the last song, Joker Man, we were flying. It was the best song of the night. I knew the harmonica solo would be the jewel in the crown, and I couldn't wait to play it. It would be even better than the harmonica solo I'd just played in the previous song, License to Kill. So when the moment came, I picked the harp up from the top of the martial amp and blew. Ugh, it was awful. It was the wrong harp. It was in the wrong key. It was the harp I had used for License to Kill. The two notes I got out over the mic sounded like, uh-oh, and never was there a truer musical equivalent of language. I shot eyes to the side of the stage, furious eyes, looking at the people scattering about, only just realizing what had happened. There we are, on network TV time, treading water, 
What was I supposed to do? I thought the whole thing, which up until this point had been incredible, was about to come crashing down. You can't continue. I felt like this was just typical of my time of late. Nothing seemed to be working. Even the things that started out good fell apart. I cursed the universe. Life is meaningless. This was like Rundown. Like Howard. Like Live Aid. Like... But then... Then, the band, they just got on with it. I just said to them, keep on playing. So they did. Honestly, I've seen seasoned pros thrown by stuff like that. But this little punk band was holding it together on national TV. In fact, they weren't holding it together. They were lighting it up. Without hesitation. The sound was incredible. Slick. Punky. I left it to them. They deserved the spotlight. After what felt like hours, the right harp was finally placed in my hands. We finished the song and the crowd lost their minds. That incident with the harp represented what the show was. Rough around the edges and chaotic, but a fucking classic, man. I felt like I was in the Rolling Stones that night, and there wasn't even a Rolling Stone to deliver a big shrug afterwards. It gave me a brief moment of rebirth. Letterman asked me if we could come play every Tuesday night. I laughed, but honestly, if he'd have been serious, I would have done it. Afterwards, a guy called Ed, who had been running backline duties on the show that night, apologized to me for the harmonica mess-up. Turns out I'd told him the wrong key anyway, so I guess it was yours truly who was to blame. Grief-stricken at his foolish action. The band partied that night, and Liberace came along for the ride. I got his egg casserole recipe, too. At the end of the night, I told JJ and the boys I'd give them a call and talk about a tour. I never did. In fact, I didn't see them again. Why? That night, that moment, it was too pure. I didn't want it to be tainted, to fall apart. I did, however, take one person from that night on tour with me, though. Can you guess who? Ed, the harmonica guy. He came on a European tour with me, and he never put out the wrong harmonica again. In 1985, Minnesota, Paul Moreau ran down a quiet street near his home. He clutched a hockey stick in his teenaged hands and imagined he was in the Stanley Cup as his legs worked overtime. He'd gone back home for lunch after another morning at Hibbing High School. He flicked an imaginary puck. He shoots, he scores, and then stopped dead in his tracks. A car was parked in front of his house. There were never any cars parked in front of his house. Two men sat inside the vehicle, one in the front, the other in the back. Pat studied the car as he walked by, skeptically, and couldn't quite believe what he thought he saw. Ma, that looks like Bob Dylan in that car, Pat announced to his mother, Angel, inside their house. Angel never met Bob Dylan, but she knew his mother, Betty Zimmerman. 
Angel bought the house she was standing in from Betty after her husband, Abe, Bob Dylan's father, died from a heart attack in 1968. Pat watched his mother walk outside and approached the parked car. She rapped on the window. The man who emerged wore dark sunglasses, a baggy shirt, and scruffy pants. He removed his large shades, revealing tired eyes that had the remnants of eyeliner on them. Can I help you in some way? Angel asked. Though she didn't know Bob Dylan, she knew she was talking to Bob Dylan. Dylan looked down at the ground. He offered a bashful response. I was just going to Duluth where my father's buried and I just thought I'd come and see the house. Angel looked back at the house and caught Pat's eye as he watched through the window. Of course, she told Dylan. My pleasure. Dylan felt a swelling of emotion as he made his way up the short path to the front door of the angular house. Angel let him in and Dylan stepped inside for the first time in nearly two decades. He was greeted by a silent and tentative Pat who could barely form any cohesive words. Feel free to have a look around was the only thing Angel could think to say. Dylan looked lost. He turned to Angel and asked if she could give him the tour. He walked through the rooms with the two current residents, remembering things that had happened two, three, even four lifetimes ago. He remembered whole moments he'd forgotten, home-cooked meals from his mother, playing Little Richard songs on the piano, the sight of sheets drying outside the kitchen window. When he asked Angel if they could go to the basement, she was taken aback. You want the full tour, she laughed. Dylan mustered a small smile, but couldn't hide his true emotions. Once downstairs, he told the story of how his father spent an entire winter putting up the pine paneling in the basement. It was still there. Dylan ran his hands over it as he spoke. He felt like he was touching his father again. The subterranean room was a time capsule. I've got something for you if you'd like to see it, Angel said. From the back of the cupboard, she pulled out some plates Betty had left behind. Dylan held the plates in his hands, studying the design. He remembered them so clearly from his youth, but now in his hands at this moment, they seemed so different. The design was faded. The previous red and brown coloring that had been so bold and colorful now looked muted. We only use them to put leftovers out for the birds now, Angel explained. Dylan smiled. Still clutching the plate, he was taken up to his old room. He climbed the stairs of the house, his body instinctively knowing the route that he'd made a million times. And Pat opened the door, but Dylan didn't go in. He stood in the doorway and took the whole room in from a distance. It was so small. It seemed to have shrunk over time. Then Dylan stepped inside the room. His heart pounded. History and memory circled around him. He felt as though he stepped into a past life, like he was regressing. Everything he had become, everything he was, had been stripped away in that room. He was bare. His accolades, his status, his money were all gone. And they were meaningless in this room. But so were all of his problems, his weariness, his mistakes. And they were all gone. Here he was, Bobby Zimmerman not Bob Dylan. He turned to look at Pat who sat quietly on the bed, just in the way Dylan had done all those years ago. He felt like he was dancing in time, like he could zip back and forward up and down his life's timeline at any given moment. And then, after just a few seconds of that intoxicating feeling, it was gone. He was Bob Dylan again, 
He thanked both Pat and Angel as he walked out the front door. Don't forget your souvenir, Pat said, picking up one of Betty's plates that Dylan had tried to leave behind. As he walked back down that old path to the car, he looked at the plate with the faded design in his hands. It looked tired and dated. The red and brown had merged into one another. The closer he looked, the more it looked just like blood on the tracks. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Zeth Lundy is lead editor and producer. This episode was written by Ben Burrow. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Mixing and sound design by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This episode featured Chris Anzalone as Bob Dylan. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. Follow Double Elvis on Instagram at DoubleElvis and on Twitch at DisgracelandTalks. And you can talk to me, per usual, on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. 
she's breathing. Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.